Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to More Than Amuse podcast, a podcast all about women and the arts hosted by Stani and Sadie. Join us as we explore what it's like being a female artist, examine modern day problems, and educate ourselves and you on important and forgotten female artists of the past. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to More Than Amuse. I'm Stani. And I'm Sadie. And thanks for being here. If you're unfamiliar with our structure of episodes, every other week we talk about a women artist that's been forgotten history. But in between those, we love to do topics that obviously still touch on women and the arts. So today is our topic episode, and I'm excited about it. It's one that's been on the idea doc for a really long time. And so I'm really excited that we're finally getting the chance to dive into it. And we were talking about it right before we started recording. There's a really fun one to research for. Yes, it really was. I have a minor in art history, and so I took a bunch of art history classes. And I was telling Sadie that even though we talked about the paintings and the symbolism behind them, we didn't clearly address who a lot of the models or people in the paintings were unless Mm -hmm. it was like directly relevant so there was a few that I knew and quite a few that I had no idea so it's fun to get like the background on some of these famous paintings yeah absolutely and also I mean with this episode we're gonna be going through quite a few famous paintings that we can only describe so follow us on Instagram I'm saying that at the beginning Because I'm sure throughout the week, we will be posting a lot of visuals of the actual paintings. But of course, you can always Google it. Information's out there. Even if you don't recognize the name, I promise that you'll recognize the visual because they are all, (laughs) not all, some are more famous than others, but they're all famous paintings. (laughs) Yeah, literally how we got this list. If you type in Google, the most famous paintings of all time, these are the ones that came up that had women in them. That was all I focused on was as long as there was a female model at some point in the painting, they Mm -hmm. made it onto the list. But we are covering 26 paintings. Yes. So I will post probably the majority of them at some point on Instagram. So yes, definitely check them out. But a lot of them you would know. Yes. From seeing them. You'll definitely know. (laughs) And most of them too, I dare say you'll know by name. Probably. At least the first one. Yeah. The first one. (laughs) (laughs) Should we dive right in or is there anything else we need to touch on before we start the topic? I guess we didn't like officially say what we're doing. True. I guess I'm assuming if people click on the title. Yeah. But yeah, do you want to explain what we're doing? Yeah. We're talking about the women that are in all of these most famous paintings. Our whole podcast name is More Than a Muse. Mm -hmm. These are essentially the most famous muses Mm -hmm. of time, since these are the people that the artists based their famous artwork off of. It's going to be a lot, but there's some really fun stories in here, and it was really fun to hear the background about it. Definitely. Then I will kick us off with the most famous one that I think is the most (laughs) obvious first pick, which is the Mona Lisa by Leonardo da Vinci, which is obviously just a widespread, very famous painting. I need no explanation of it. This one is probably the most famous painting of all time. Yes, which is almost funny that it's like, why this painting? I know. I don't really get it either. There's some kind of lore behind it. (laughs) I'll say like really quick. Leonardo da Vinci apparently kept this painting with him like his whole life. So it was like his most treasured possession. And because he was such a celebrated artist, a lot of people believe that's why we just adopted his reverence for it. Yeah. Okay. That's but I don't know if that's like entirely true like i said that's just the story i heard that it was his most treasured possession therefore we treat it like ours yeah that's i feel like an idealized nice version of it i think i also heard a story of there was like a heist that she was stolen and so that made the media more aware of the mona lisa and then because it was stolen it made people be like oh then it must be something worth valuable so then when it was found again it like had that media frenzy about it so then people were able to recognize the mona lisa like the name of it yeah i, I don't I remember, remember all the details like of it but 
I did a brief Google search of like, why is it so famous? And it was like, because of a weird string of circumstances that just made it the big (laughs) deal that it is. (laughs) Oh, so funny. But it is a good painting. And of course, what is it? But it's a picture of a woman. It's a portrait of a woman based off of what I found. Many historians, obviously, have come up with answers about who they believe Mona Lisa was in real life. And the most common answer is that Mona Lisa is a portrait of the real life Lisa Garadini, who was born on June 15, 1479, in Via Maggio, which is a Republic of Florence. She was the wife of a Florentine merchant named Frances- Francesco del Giocondo. Some historians, though, have different thoughts about who the famous artwork represents. Some believe that the Mona Lisa isn't a real person at all, maybe a figment of Leonardo's imagination. Others would even think that it's a self-portrait of Leonardo himself, which I don't know if I believe. But the most popular one is that it is Lisa Garadini, who mm-hmm. is the portrait of this. I have to say that's what I That makes think it sense. Is. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Leonardo da Vinci was very progressive. It wouldn't be that weird for him to paint a gender-bent portrait of himself. True. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't a very common procedure at the time. Yes. Especially naming it Mona Lisa after that. Yeah, true. Also, the idea of it's a figment of their imagination. It's common to even have people still pose as a model when you're doing a person. Even for mythological paintings, which we will cover, they Mm -hmm. still had someone posing. So Makes more sense. And you know that saying that is whatever is the path of least resistance is is probably probably the the truth. truth. It's like with conspiracy theories. It's like this outlandish thing. I'm like, but why? Who is that helping? Who is that actually serving? And a lot of the times (laughs) it's maybe things aren't a conspiracy. They're just it's just what it is. Just Lisa Garadini. I agree. It's on to the next one. next one is another painting by Leonardo da Vinci Mm -hmm. uh, titled Lady with an Ermine, which is like a weasel. I think that's what an ermine is. Yeah. And I didn't remember this, but Leonardo da Vinci was the resident artist at the Milan court for a short amount of time. And the subject of the painting is the 17-year-old mistress of the Duke of Milan, whose name was Ludovico Sforska, I think. And her name was Cecilia Gallerini. So she's believed to be the favorite and most celebrated of his many mistresses. And they think that she was his most preferred partner, but because her social rank was too low, it wasn't a politically acceptable match for him to just marry her. Hence why she was his mistress. They did have a son together that they named Caesar. And then he continued to provide for the family with palatial homes. He arranged a marriage for her with an Italian court member so that their affair could continue, which was pretty common. They'd marry him off and then so they could remain in court. Oh, yeah. But then they just had an arrangement with the husband or is like, hey, but she's my mistress. I don't know. I mean, at least they're being honest about it. Yeah. And it was a very common practice at the time. Gallerini and her son continued to live at the Castello Sforza for up to a year. But then his long negotiated marriage to the daughter of the Duke of Ferrera was impending. And the 16-year-old Duchess was upset about the affair happening. And I think his favoritism of her and insisted that they get removed so he moved him to a palace and I mean, they sounds fine there. to me. I know, right? Here, have this nice, beautiful house. Fine. <laughs> yeah, and he continued to provide for them. She died at an unknown date, but apparently the painting did make its way back to her for a short time. And she did comment about how she didn't even look like it anymore. Her standing next to it, no one would be able to tell that they were the same people. But a lot of what I read, they describe her as a patron of the arts and said that hers was the first salon in Europe. So I think she was like a very beloved art lover. Yeah. (laughs) As she collected and everything. There's a bunch of symbolism in it, too, that in a lot of these, actually, if you wanted to go up and actually look at the meanings of all of them. Yeah. Supposedly, the ermine represented the Duke and their love affair and prosperity, a bunch of stuff. Okay. There's a ton to it. But the painting's now in Krakow. Yeah, that's Lady with an Ermine. There we go. The next one is another one that's very popular, which is The Girl with a Pearl Earring by Johannes Vermeer, right? That's how I would say that. The truth is with this one is there's not a name that they can pull out like they can with the other two, as is 
with all these paintings, and I think especially with these big paintings, like it is a discussion point of who they are. Some people think that it was the artist's daughter or perhaps maybe even his mistress. We don't know. What I thought was interesting, though, an article I read said the 17th century viewers would have looked at Vermeer's painting and seen not a portrait, but a type of picture known as a trony. And a trony is a study of a head and shoulders dressed in exotic clothing. And the giveaway of that would be the turban that she's wearing that apparently lends like an oriental flavor. I'm acknowledging that as a very outdated term. It's just how they viewed it, that it would bring that flavor to the canvas. So it was meant to be exotic or something like that. So it's obviously possible that someone modeled for it, but it's not even meant to be a specific person, but it is actually supposed to be like a generalized, timeless, mysterious, perhaps a Sybil or a figure from the Bible, which I thought was interesting. But part of the theory of it's not supposed to be a real person, it's supposed to be a fantasy, is the fact that there's like this huge pearl earring, which is just too big to be worn in reality. It's meant to be understood as a piece of costume jewelry. So that kind of adds to this atmosphere of make-believe that it's supposed to be, like I said, like an exotic person that's not like a real portrait. I thought that was interesting. I remember, I've probably mentioned them before, but I read the children's book Chasing Vermeer growing up, and they talk about how mysterious of an artist he was. Yeah. So I think it makes it even more fun, the fact that we don't know who this is. And that's what the article brought up, is it matches the, yeah, his own reputation. We don't really know much Mm. about him, so because of that, we really don't know anything about her, but here's the trends of the time that he was probably painting. Funny. Yeah. I like it. Sorry, the answer for that one is, I don't know, but... I kind of love that the answer for that one is I don't know. Yeah, same. (laughs) Adds to the intrigue. It really does. Okay, the next one is The Kiss by Gustav Klimt. Mm -hmm. I feel like this one's pretty identifiable as well. So this one's actually widely debated as well. Klimt himself never made a statement on the subject. This is also probably the most abstracted painting that we're covering today. Yeah. Because his art style is very different. But... A lot of people think that it's a self-portrait of the artist with his lifelong partner, Emily Plage. I guess you would say that. I'm probably saying it wrong. There's no evidence of this, but a lot of painters would use their wives as default models. So it would make sense that because the face is showing that it's most likely her. Something that's really cool, she actually was an Austrian fashion designer and businesswoman and had a really successful business that he would introduce her to his painting clients and then she would make dresses. And what I thought was even cooler is if you look at some of her fashions, they mirror the patterns that are on the clothing of the people in this portrait. Oh, that is cool. Yeah, so I think they like duly inspired each other. And I was like, wow, we could totally do an episode on her in the future. That's what I was just thinking. I'm like, okay, cool. Adding that to a future person to cover. That's awesome. It most likely was probably her and him. Yes. But we don't know. There we go. The next one is Venus by Sandro Botticelli, which is a really beautiful one. We talked about it in our episode It was the male gaze versus the female gaze. I think a lot of these paintings, at least some later ones too, I'll bring it up, that I recognize that we had talked about the paintings before and talked about the way that men have portrayed women throughout history. And this is one that we touched on. That's one thing I was going to mention at the beginning and I didn't. Mm -hmm. All these paintings are by men because they were on that list as the most recognizable. There were a few that I left off. I think some self-portraits by Artemisia Ventowski. Gentowski are gaining some reputation and came up as more recognizable. However, we know that those are her. Yes. But yeah, like all of the most recognizable paintings on the list were by men. That's worth noting. That's why we're focusing on the people in them. The women. And hey, we are more than a muse. We're touching on the muses. <laughs> and also, I think yeah. that it's a that's a great companion episode for this one is the Definitely. male versus female gaze because in that episode we don't really talk about the women but we analyze the way that the men perceived them and painted them through these historical paintings mm-hmm. check that one out to, like I said go along with this but anyway so this is Venus and what was interesting about this one is that they know who the model was and the model that was painted as Venus is Simonetta Cata- Catanio um, Vespucci And she was a noblewoman from Genoa, as many people believe to be a coincidence from Porta Venere, which is Venus Harbor. So (laughs) that just works. 
But Simonetta arrived in Florence with her husband in the period in which Lorenzo the Magnificent and his brother, Giuliano of the Medici family, rose to power. The couple joined the court life, and her beauty pretty much became legendary in Florence, that even those two people I mentioned, they fell in love with her. In 1475, the Giuliano's tournament took place in Santa Croce Square, and it seems that Giuliano participated in it because the prize was a flag with the portrait of Simonetta, painted by Botticelli, which was Lassans Par, the unequaled, was written on the flag. So just to show how beautiful she was, there was a tournament where literally the prize was her portrait, essentially. Like, Goodness. that was the symbol of winning. And that's why those two men at least wanted to participate that would never happen today. Literally. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> but hey, I mean, she must have been very beautiful. But she did not only inspire his Botticelli's Venus. Oh, this was crazy. He obtained to be buried at the foot of his muse in the Florentine church of Oganosti. However, Botticelli was not the only one to be inspired by her. Piero di C Cosimo portrayed her as Cleopatra, and Lorenzo the Magnificent and Luigi Pulci wrote rhymes for her. Holy crap, how beautiful was the fact that he was like, <laughs> when I die, I want to be buried by my muse. Yeah. And that all these other people were like, no, but I've made art for her. What's so sad, though, is she died just a year after that tournament, of which she had been the queen, probably because of tuberculosis. But even though she was dead, Botticelli kept on realizing his artworks inspired by her. His Venus in Spring, his masterpiece, was painted about 10 years after her death, but her beauty was well fixed in the artist's mind who painted her by memory. Goodness gracious. So, yeah, Simonetta. It is a beautiful painting, to be fair. I know. I always thought she was very lovely. I just didn't know it was... That men were, like, fighting in <laughs> tournaments for the chance to have a portrait of her? Yeah, my goodness. I guess they didn't have Instagrams. They couldn't just yeah. go look at her whenever they wanted. No, no, right? no. No, exactly, which I love it. That's crazy. Okay, this next one it has got a lot of people in it. So prove it to me. This painting I actually love. It's called Las Meninas or Ladies in Waiting by Diego Velasquez. Mm -hmm. It's a painting of a tiny little princess with like all these people around addressing her. And Velasquez painted it when he was working at the court of King Philip IV for over 30 years. And at the time of the painting, King Philip had remarried Mariana of Austria. And Margaret Teresa, who is the little girl at the center of the painting, was their first and only daughter. She only would have been about five when this painting was painted, which is crazy because you look at what she's wearing and how she's standing. Mm hmm and she's five. Yeah. <laughs> Although Philip had 12 children between his two wives, she was only one of two to survive into adulthood. So a very treasured little princess when you only lose 10 children and only have two live. She actually later became the Holy Roman Empress when she married Leopold I. And here she's being attended by two ladies-in-waiting and dressing in the full splendor that one would expect from the young princess. Her gaze isn't on either of the ladies-in-waiting, but directly outward to whoever is standing behind the easel, which, if you look really closely, apparently you can see her parents' reflection, which means she was staring at her parents. There's a lot of trick with mirrors and stuff in this painting that's really cool. So there's a little mirror, and it reflects the couple, and so you can tell that she's looking at her parents behind, supposedly, Velasquez painting at his easel. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So she's at the center. On either side of her are her two ladies-in-waiting whose names were Maria Agustina Saramentio and Isabel de Velasco. Isabel is the one standing on the princess's left, ready to curtsy, and Maria Agustina is kneeling before her and offering a drink on a tray. It was also very common in the court at the time to have people with dwarfism little people it was like a really common thing i don't know they had like important roles but it didn't tell me what they were but there's also two women with dwarfism maria barbola and nicolasito pertuasato mm. sorry i'm saying that wrong they stand over on the right hand side of the canvas 
Perchuasado's foot is actually on the back of a dog as if she's trying to wake him up. And he's a Spanish Mastiff, which was bred as guard dogs for the kingdom. And then standing just behind Isabel de Lovasco is Margaret Teresa's chaperone, Marcela de Oloa. And she's dressed in mourning and chats with an unidentified figure who's probably a bodyguard. So like I said, lots of people in this painting, lots of women, all for this Mm -hmm. tiny little Margaret Teresa. Yeah. Amazing. The next one was another one that we covered in the male gaze versus female gaze because she has a very long back. And it is... The woman with an extrovertible. Yes. And it's La Grande Odalesque. Oh, is that how you say it? Odalesque. Odalesque. Thank you. La Grande Mm -hmm. Odalesque by Jean-Auguste Domingue Ingres. Something that I thought was an interesting thing to learn was the fact that when this painting came out, they also were like, hey, what is up with her back? As the article mentioned, he had no problem with disordering bodies to preserve what he considered beauty, and which is exactly what he did in this painting. And thank goodness, like I said, it was, not maybe thank goodness, but hey, it was ridiculed at the time in 1819, where salon goers complained that her back had too many vertebrae and her oddly elongated arm had no elbow. And his idealism was to the point of deformity, which we get, we talked about that a lot more. And so it was while in it, he was in Italy when he painted this for Caroline Murat, I think, who was Napoleon's sister and queen of Naples. And it depicts a young Turkish concubine and is one of the first examples in art of, again, another mention of the term of Orientalism, which is a term referring to the West fascination with the Muslim world of North Africa and the Near East. So I don't know who that is. I didn't necessarily say I don't think they do know, but I think they talked about the fact that he might have used a model, but he did not care about human proportions, clearly, because it was focusing on the fascination. And it's a very toxic, I think, viewing of exoticism and like things like that. And this painting is a example of that. But I was relieved to read that they were criticizing it even at the time. <laughs> yeah, sadly, they were probably complaining more about her body proportions. True, the, but at least they recognized yeah. that, hey. <laughs> Anyways, I, I just thought that was funny. Okay, this next one is The Lady of Shalott by John William Waterhouse. I always think of Anne of Green Gables when I oh. hear this because she recites the poem. And that's where it comes from. It's Tennyson's poem titled also The Lady of Shalott which is this tragic poem that I figured I'd recap really quickly because I actually didn't know Oh yeah, extent. Do it. According to a legend, she was cursed in a tower near King Arthur's Camelot, and she is forbidden from leaving the tower by way of the curse. So she sits in the tower and weaves and is only allowed to look upon reality through a mirror, but she decides to defy her curse. So she heads out the window and goes down in a small boat to Camelot, but she's punished for breaking the curse and she she dies before she reaches her destination. So this painting is depicting her in those final moments where she's in her boat headed down the river to Camelot, which she'll never get there alive. Oh, brutal. And it's really sad. And once again, there's tons of details, like the candle, the tapestry, everything they have there. Mm. The model is probably... Another probably here, um, the artist's wife, Esther Kenworthy Waterhouse. She also was an artist. She was a British artist who exhibited her flower paintings at the Royal Academy in London. And I think they both met while they were studying art. But what's funny is that she actually didn't pose in a court. She didn't pose in a boat draped with tapestries and floating down a river. She actually posed by sitting in a shrubbery on a small courtyard down a narrow lane in North London. Nice. Yep. (laughs) So they know that he had a model for it, most likely his wife, but a lot of the surroundings were added in because it would probably be really hard to do that. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So they think that he just had her pose outside in her yard. Yeah. But very funny this next one is boreas by john william waterhouse and the person who's in the painting the model is miss muriel foster and beginning in the 1890s and continuing until his death he actually worked primarily with one female model and for a long time there was a lot of mystery surrounding 
And so she was known as like the Waterhouse Girl and was known like for her beauty. The mystery was solved in 1988. A pencil study by Waterhouse for his 1905 painting La Maya, I think, was given to the Yale Center for British Art in New Haven, Connecticut. It depicts an upturned face of the model and her name is inscribed by Waterhouse on the paper and it said Miss Muriel Foster. So because they found that, they were able to put her name. And what I thought was interesting is that it said that his best work had for its foundation one of the most successful partnerships between artist and model in the history of painting. Something that Rossetti wrote in another contents saying beauty like hers is genius. I thought that was cool that they didn't know who it was, but that they could tell it was always the same model until they finally found it written in pencil in a sketch. That's That's so so cool to figure that out. And so, yeah, it's Miss Muriel Foster. Don't know much else about her, but we know her name, which is cool. Okay, this next one's really funny. This is The Swing by Jean Honoré Fragonard. I always loved his last name. Mm -hmm. It's actually in the movie Frozen. Oh. If you've seen that recently. She jumps up and poses in the swing position. As soon as you say that, I'm like, oh, duh. Yeah. The backstory is not as Disney friendly, but it's funny. In 1767, the Baron of St. Julian wanted a painting of him in the company of his mistress. And he had this very precise idea. So he wanted them to paint her on a swing that a bishop was pushing. And then he wanted to be at her legs so that he could look up her skirt. Oh, yeah, oh, in the painting. No. Oh, and that is what is happening. Yeah, he phrased it really weird. He was like, I will be within reach to see the legs of this beautiful child and even better if you want to brighten up your painting more. Oh, no. Imagine being like a creepy old man. Hold on. The painter was a genius with what he did with it. So first he approached the painter, Gabriel Francois Doyen, who refused the commission, said it was too frivolous, and directed him towards John Fragonard, who was a young painter and did a lot of portraits like this. He accepted. And so in the center of the painting is the Baron's mistress. We don't know her name, but she's one of the most iconic symbols in art now. So good for her. So she's sitting on a swing and mischievously has her shoe throwing off which was a sign of sensuality because her ankle is showing and her foot is bare (laughs) towards her lover who is the baron who's down at her feet hiding in the bushes and yes i genuinely looking up her see him there like on the first look at so yep he's down there what's funny is instead of putting a bishop behind her putting pushing the swing it's replaced by what the artist described as a deceived husband who's pushing the swing with a smile on his face without suspecting that his wife is having fun with another man. Oh, no. <laughs> he also added a symbol of love or a little Cupid statue on the left who's holding a finger to his lips as if telling yeah. everyone, Shh, don't let everyone know what's going on here. So I thought it was very funny that instead of a bishop, like, blessing, yes, the, that he has, like, the deceived husband. That <laughs> feels better. the swing. He's, I know, it's really funny. Yes, sure, I'll take it. I'll take the commission, yep. but we'll do it in my on my, in my, in way, basically. Yeah. This also is probably the most famous example of Rococo style, which I just absolutely love. It's the Thrills complete girly style, and I just love that it was so popular for so long. Yeah, I love it too. This next one is the Naked Maha versus the Clothed Maha. The thing is with this one, like I said, there's two versions, clothed one and the non-clothed one. Where the identity of the model and that of the commissioner have not been confirmed. Oh, by the way, it was by Francisco Goya. I didn't mention that. But art historians and scholars have suggested that she is Maria Catenata da Silva or Godoy's mistress Pepita Tuda. I don't know. Maria Catiana da Silva is the 13th Duchess of Alba, who is a Spanish aristocrat and a popular subject, apparently, of the f- painter Francisco de Goya. People are just assuming that it was also probably her. And like when I look at her and I see her portrait and then I see this one, I'm like, yeah, maybe I could see that. Again, it's never been confirmed, but people are assuming that. I have a question. Yeah. Did he have to paint the clothes on her? Is that why there's two versions or did he create two? So from my understanding that there are two paintings, like one is clothed, one is not. 
and it was just in his private collection. And so then when they found it, they were like appalled. Because yeah, they don't really know why the paintings came from. It must have just been some type of commission. Like I said, like it could have been his mistress, which was Pepito or Pepita Tudo, just one of his mistresses. But also the Duchess of Alba, the other one, also had an affair. So he could have been commissioned to that. I don't know why it exists. People don't really know either. But like I said, they found them both and they were like, oh, dear. One's clothed, one's not. It's not like he like released the naked one. Like they were shocked. So then they yeah, I wonder. The it reminded me of one. like the Parks and Rec thing where they like uh-huh. have the centaur and then they're like, no. And then they. And so they have to switch it out with the other one. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break just to spotlight one of our new favorite women artists. So today I'll be spotlighting its Davucci illustration and the Instagram bio or not bio Instagram handle is D-E-V-U-C-I-I. They do illustrations, pattern, print, packaging designs, and they're actually, I think, in India, which is cool, but they have the most beautiful floral artwork. Or do people, I really just absolutely love their style. And there's one where like the girl's like wearing flower sunglasses and then there's flowers all around her. They're just absolutely beautiful and they're so colorful. You can go check that out. And if you go onto her Society6, she has the prints that you can purchase. She has a like, girl with a guitar that I actually love and absolutely love. Not actually love. That sounds so rude. I actually like it. (laughs) Weird. And then, yeah, you can get her artwork done on a lot of different things. And there's a lot of beautiful things. And again, it's Davucci. D-E-V-U-C-I-I. And her little floral sunglasses art girl is the, is her, what's it called? Like her profile picture. I love it. So pretty. Yes. Cool. Okay. Have you heard this song on TikTok called Omaha? No. With the violin? Oh, I'm obsessed with okay, it. I need to find that. Yeah, it's trending, at least on my page. Maybe I might have heard it and I just hadn't realized <laughs> I had heard it. Yeah. Yeah, it's called Omaha or The Only What If. Oh, pretty. It's by Katie Lynn Sharbaugh. Cool. And that's what she is on TikTok and Instagram. I have it on a playlist. I'm really obsessed with the song. She plays the violin in it and sings. Pretty. I love that. And it's just cute. It's this little story about her meeting a guy on a plane, and she talks about how much he reminds her of her ex. Oh. And then she sings about how her ex isn't the one who got away. He's just the only what if. Ah, I like that. That's cool. It's really cute. There's a line in it I love that it's like, and you've got, a girl now who's like your saving grace or something like that and then she says aren't you glad i gave my place to someone worthy of it that's a good line yeah so you're happy now you're off with your little love Mm -hmm. and you're not the one that got away you're just the only what if dang but it's cute the video is on tiktok as well and it's just her strolling through a field playing her violin and singing amazing then i'm definitely going to be listening to that literally after we're done recording I'm excited. Yeah, definitely check it out. I really love it. It's really beautiful. And she's Nashville-based. Oh, sweet. Nashville-based singer-songwriter. Definitely check her out and go listen to the song. It's really cute. Yay. All right. Now back to the show. Okay. I'm probably going to butcher this, even though I did write a whole paper on this one for school. Oh, nice. It's a bar at the Folies Berger. By Edward Manet. And this is his last major painting that he ever painted. And it exhibited at the Salon in 1882. What it's depicting is actually one of the most famous popular music halls and places of entertainment in Paris. And that's the Folage Berger. The reason I had to write a whole paper on it is because the perspective is really warped. The lady who's standing at the bar is also seen in the reflection of the glass behind the bar talking to a guy right in front of her. But from her expression on her face, it doesn't look like anyone's there when you first look at it. Mm. I don't know. It's like an interesting piece. Like I said, we had to write a whole paper. But Manet really liked to frequent this bar and took a lot of sketches on site. However, this final piece of artwork was actually painted entirely in his studio. And all we know about the subject was it was a barmaid who actually worked 
at the Folles Berger. Yeah. And he had her come to his studio and pose. Oh, cool. And she's the subject of the painting. I'm assuming she got paid because it was pretty common at the time. Yeah, but that is cool. And that is a beautiful painting. It is. It's really pretty. There's so much going on with reflection and all sorts of stuff. And it's like a really complex painting in the reflections you can see circus performers and the crowd Mm -hmm. and the bottles are distorted at the bar and she just has such a interesting expression on her face yeah it's a really cool painting i've always really liked that one i love it the next one is another edward monet and another one that we talked about in our male versus female gaze (laughs) which was les dujeners sur l'herbe Lunch on the grass, basically. Mm-hmm. It's believed the nude female in the painting was inspired by Victorine Morant, who was a favorite model of Manet, who posed for many of his other paintings, including Olympia, which I think is considered to be like his masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Also, though, it was considered to be scandalous at the time. But Marat was 18 or 19 at the time. She was relatively poor and actually an aspiring artist herself. But then because of the notoriety of Lunch on the Grass, <laughs> she would become one of the few models who would be known by name. Some biographers believe that Marat and Manet collaborated on the concept, actually, of this painting and that it was actually her influence that led Manet to portray her as a poised and powerful female figure, casually enjoying the company of the well-dressed modern men. And apparently the reaction, though, to this painting ranged from amusement to disgust and outrage. The painting was struck by a stick on more than one occasion. And this line made me giggle. Men accompanied by their families would rush their wives and young children away from the painting to spare them from looking upon such depravity. Reportedly, these same men would return on their own to ogle at the canva. Oh, god! <laughs> or at the canvas. <laughs> so uh, I thought that was oh, hilarious. Man. But we did talk about that painting in the male-female gaze and definitely criticized the painting. But I thought it was interesting to read that maybe she actually collaborated with him and that's the reason why she looks confident there you know, despite the fact that she's literally naked in the middle of a picnic. I thought that was interesting and cool that, you know, she is one of the few models that's actually known by name because of her work with Manet. So I thought that was really cool. I like that meaning more. Maybe we'll stick with Mm -hmm. that one. I love it. Cool. The next one is Luncheon of the Boating Party by Pierre-Auguste Renoir, another famous artist. He loved to apparently put his friends in paintings. So... There's a ton of people in this one, too, so we'll go through really quick. There is a seamstress, Ellen Sherigot, who's holding a dog, and she actually was Renoir's wife, and they had three sons together. There is also an actress named Ellen Andre, who is drinking from a glass in the center. Placed within, but peripheral to the party, is the proprietor's daughter, Louise Alphonse. Alphonsine Fournaise and her brother, who are wearing little straw hats, and she is the smiling woman leaning on the railing. There's also a bunch of close friends, <laughs> Frenois, that are men that I didn't mention. There's an amateur art historian and two of his other close friends flirting with the actress. And then, did I already name that actress? Oh, yeah, there's another actress, Gian Samari. In the upper right-hand corner. And then in the foreground, Gustave Calabote wears a white boater shirt and a flat-topped boater's hat. Sitting next to the actress, Angele Legault, and the Italian journalist, Adrian Magalio. Yes. So a very crowded little boating party. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like he was friends with a lot of artists and art historians mm-hmm. and actresses. Number 15, Ball du Moulin de la Jalette. Ball at the Jalette. Galette? Yeah. Yeah. By Pierre yeah. Auguste Renoir. <laughs> Ball at the Moulin de la Galette. Thank you. Galette. You are the one with no. the art history minor, <laughs> and I fear okay, this episode good. is showing that, so you know. <laughs> Renoir was very French. Yes. His titles are all in French. We do the best we can. But this is one of his paintings, which is, yeah, Dance at the Moulin de la Galette by Renoir. And he visited the favorite weekend location for Parisians where they would gather to dance, converse, and eat and drink. And he captured a, a snapshot of this. Two girls in the foreground are believed to be Jean Samery and his sister Estelle, who would visit Le Moulin every Sunday. Jean or Jeanne was a French actress who performed in one of Paris's leading theaters, Comédie Française, 
And this was not the first actual Renoir work on which she appeared, with other paintings being Le Dujeneur de Conatier's Luncheon at the Boating Party, as you mentioned, and La Balançoire, The Swing. And then three young men sitting next to them are Pierre-Franc Lamaille, which we, I guess we don't really care about the men, but we'll shout them out. Norbert <laughs> Gnaud and Georges Riviere. Gnaud was actually famous for his illustrations and was also depicted on La Balançoire with Jean. So he reused a lot of his people or a lot of models. And I think it's fun that he would use his own friends as models. Yeah. That makes sense. They're there. You yeah. Know what they look like. It makes it really easy. Totally. I love how many people he crams into his paintings. I know both of them. <laughs> it's so much. Yeah. They're really crowded. It's cool. Okay. Apparently, this painting is extremely controversial, which I have no idea. Their faces aren't actually shown, but this is a painting called The Gleaners by Jean-Francois Millet. And there's some etchings of it as well that you'll probably see online if you Google it. But it immediately drew negative criticism because they thought that it was like glorifying the lower class worker. Oh, interesting. It's three women who are gleaning, which is essentially like harvesting a field. Two of them are bent down. The other one's like putting some in her bag. And having come out of the French Revolution in 1848, a lot of people saw it as a reminder that French society was built upon the labor of the working masses mm -hmm. or the growing movement of socialism, which oh. they were not happy about because they were all French aristocrats. And the depiction of the working class made them feel uneasy because if you think about the fact that the masses of workers greatly outnumbered the members of the upper class, mm -hmm. the disparity meant if lower class were to revolt, upper class would be overturned. The worst possible thing. They were like, yeah. So we will not glorify this painting. We will not give it any credit. We will criticize it. So therefore, mm -hmm. we will be safe. I don't know. All right. That's fair. Something that was also really funny is that this is actually a really large painting. It's 33 inches by 44 inches, which was really large for a painting depicting labor because usually that size of canvas was reserved for religious or mythological style paintings. Oh, and because he wasn't painting anything religious-affiliated or anything referencing mythological beliefs, uh -huh. people saw it as being too big. One person even said, his three gleaners have gigantic pretensions. They pose as the three fates of poverty, their ugliness and their grossness unrelieved. So they were really upset about it. And he actually ended up not selling it for a lot. He had an asking price of 4000 and only sold it for 3000 francs, even though he tried to get him to budge multiple times. And so he ended up keeping, trying to keep the price a secret. It didn't gain a lot of notoriety during his life, but after his death, public appreciation for his work broadened. And the painting, then owned by a banker, sold for 300,000 francs at auction. So feel bad for the artist there. And it was announced later that the champagne maker, Jeanne-Alexandrine-Louis Pomery, had acquired the piece because there was a lot of gossip about her financial issues after leaving her grapes on the vines a week longer than her competitors. And that silenced it. So it's actually a woman who bought it, and apparently it's one of the most famous champagne houses in France. Dang. Is the Pommery Champagne House. After she died, and following the conditions of her will, the painting was donated to the Louvre, which is very generous of her. And now it's in the Museum d'Orsay in Paris. Dang. What yeah. a history. I know. I was like, how random. But I think it's very fitting that a champagne house that harvests grapes ended up buying this beautiful painting of three women harvesting a field. Yeah. This next one was one that I actually didn't recognize when I first saw it, but it is so beautiful. And it's, it's really Flaming pretty. June by Frederick Layton. And really what there is to know about it is that the woman who is behind it is named Dorothy Dean. And it's who inspired Flaming Jane and who was a friend and a protege, actually, of Layton's for several decades. She modeled for many of his paintings and then what I thought was cool is that for the landscape in the background, Layton may have studied the oil sketches he had painted years before during his trips around the Mediterranean. So 
it's really like she is just laying in this beautiful orange flowy dress the orange is such a beautiful color and her hair is just so like beautifully draped over her like it's a stunning painting and her name was dorothy really dean is. i love the name of the painting too the june june mm-hmm. i love it too it's just pretty yeah this one's cute. It's Whistler's Mother by James McNeil Whistler. Mm-hmm. The story goes that James Abbott McNeil Whistler was waiting for a model to show up to do a study. I think it was just in his house. And she didn't show up. And his mom, who was living with him at the time, ended up sitting for the portrait. Originally, she was actually going to stand, but it, she was 67 and her health wasn't that great. So he ended up having her sit for the portrait and he originally i think named it arrangement in black and gray number one but then wrote portrait of the artist mother as the subtitle it's one of the most and best known famous paintings in the world and it's just his mom i love that didn't show up oh yeah and apparently he like really adored his mom makes it even cuter yeah this next one is i think another funny one because it's family so it's american gothic by grant wood which is the most typical man with his pitchfork right next to, I'm assuming, his wife. But Grant Wood actually posed his sister Nan as the female half of Amerith. And then his dentist actually was the person who's holding the pitchfork. His dentist? Yes, which is insane <laughs> to me. And of course, I don't think they realize just how profound this painting would be. It's such a recognizable piece of art. And I love this quote. It said, his rendering of a plain, stern-faced Iowa woman has a timeless, enigmatic quality that led some viewers to call her the American Mona Lisa. Mm. And then what I thought was cool is that her image stirred up kind of some meanness. And this quote said, when American Gothic was first shown in 1930, there were critics who said that she looked like the missing link and that her face would turn milk sour. Wow. I know. And that was someone who was a biographer. And then the following year as like an apology... He actually painted Portrait of Nan and and said that it was meant to be like a love letter from Grant to his sister because he loved her. And so, yeah, he did this painting. And then after completing it, he told his sister that it's the last portrait he intends to paint and it's the last time you'll ever pose for me. And the reason why is because at that point, he said her face was just too well known. So I think in the past she had done a lot of paintings for him, but then that painting just got so famous, that American Gothic, that he was like, I can't keep painting you because people are just, they'll recognize you. People know your face. Yeah. But he did a one last portrait of her as an apology for the fact that people were so mean about what she looked like in that portrait, which I thought was sweet. Wow. Because he loved his sister. That is so funny. The next one is another mysterious one. And yet we talked a lot about it in school as well. <laughs> this is the Arnolf- Arnolfini. There we go. Like, my teacher would butcher me if he <laughs> butchering this. Okay, I think it's Arnolfini. Yeah, okay. So Arnolfini sounds Arnolfini right. Portrait by Jane Van Eyck. It's this couple in a room that are believed to be, because of the name, Giovanni Di Niccolo Arnolfini and his wife Constanza Trenti. But they're not entirely sure... What they do know is that they're very rich. Checks out. (laughs) And this is because this painting is totally flexing their wealth. There's things everywhere in this painting that are being like, we're rich. We're really rich. (laughs) Look how rich we are. (laughs) Yeah, like everything in it. And like I said, if you want to go read up on all the symbolism, there's a ton in there that's like showing how fully wealthy they are. Mm -hmm. They were a part of the Italian merchant class in Flanders, which makes sense. What's funny about this portrait is that Giovanni and Costanza were actually married in 1426, which was eight years before the portrait was painted. And then Costanza died in 1433, which was like right after the portrait was painted. I'm entirely sure. It's either a depiction of their marriage or remembrance of his wife who had passed. I think it's maybe a memorial of their marriage after she died. That could be it. Interesting. Sometimes they're debating that maybe it's his second wife, but that wouldn't make sense because he ended up getting married 13 years after the portrait was painted and six years after the artist himself had died. 
And you can't really paint when you're dead. So <laughs> most likely it was a memorial for his first dead wife. Also, what's funny about it, she looks pregnant in the painting. She's not. They said that it's probably, it was just the style at the time to show how wealthy you were by having a ton of fabric. So they think that's probably it. However, it is believed that she did die in childbirth. So it could be like a subtle nod to that. But some people have said based on the fashion of the time, they don't think it had anything to do with that. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> but it's believed to be that it was a portrait of the couple with his first wife after she had passed away while him giving birth to their child that I think didn't survive either. Dang. So, yeah. But it's really, it's a really pretty portrait. Yeah, it is. It is very beautiful. Yeah. This next one is a painting that I didn't immediately recognize, but I love it a lot. It's called Nighthawks by Edward Hopper. And it was completed in January of 1942. And then according to Hopper's wife, who's named Josephine, it was immediately sold to the Art Institute of Chicago, where it actually is still today. I've seen this one. Oh, really? Cool. What I thought's interesting is the date of its completion is really significant because it was painted right before the bombing of Pearl Harbor when the threat of being bombed in New York was very real. Like people thought that New York would be targeted. So the painting was interpreted as an expression of wartime alienation. And it definitely mm. captures that because it's like a picture of like into a window of a cafe. And the figures are actually modeled on Hopper himself and his wife, Joe. And the wife said about it, Ed had just finished a very fine picture, a lunch counter at night with three figures. Nighthawks would be a fine name for it. E posed for the two men in a mirror and I for the girl. He was about a month and a half working on it. He used himself in a mirror and then she was the woman who posed for it. And it's, yeah, it's a beautiful painting. That's so cool that you've literally seen it in person. Yeah. I have. There's been a, any time it's, oh, the Art Institute of Chicago, I'm like, oh, yeah, there's a few that I remember and then a few more that once I hear that they were there that I'm like, okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. I remember looking at it. Yeah, I love it. Okay, this next one is called The Hireling Shepherd by William Holman Hunt. It's a painting of a couple, a man and a woman, sitting in the field reclined. The man's a shepherd, and he is neglecting his flock. I read a thing that apparently there's two sheep that are dead in the background. So he's not doing his job because he's paying attention to this beautiful woman. And Hunt used the local country girl, Emma Watkins, as the model. She was referred to a lot as the Coptic by the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood because of her exotic features. I don't know. She was she's a redhead in the painting. So I don't know. But Watkins traveled to London to model for Hunt to complete the picture, but then ended up returning home shortly after because she wasn't able to establish herself independently as a model, which is sad. So that's really all we know about her. And the male figure actually isn't known, but he was probably a professional art model. Cool. This next one is another just beautiful painting. It's like Lady Godiva by John Collier. And this is his portrayal of Lady Godiva and her well-known ride through Coventry, England. It was painted in 1898, and it's in the style of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. Lady Godiva was a lay Anglo-Saxon noblewoman who was well-documented as the wife of the Earl of Mercia and a patron of various churches and monasteries. I actually didn't really know about her. But the model in the painting is Mab or Mabel Paul, which was an artist model at Weston Theatre Actress who was also painted as herself by John Collier. I think just another reoccurring model. Some people yeah. think that it could have been his wife, but I think it's I think it's just Mabel. Mabel Paul, yeah. who's the model. And it's, again, just a beautiful painting. It's really pretty. I don't know a lot about the legend of Lady Godiva either. All I know is that she rode through town naked on a horse. Yes, that's all I know, too. Yeah, she rode naked, covered only in her long hair, through the streets of Coventry to gain a remission of the oppressive taxation that her husband imposed on his tenant. The name oh. Keeping Tom for a voyeur originates from later versions of this legend in which a man named Thomas watched her ride and was struck blind or dead. Good to know. So we're saying Keeping Toms should be struck blind or dead. Correct. And that's cool. from Lady Godiva. This next one is a really precious little painting. It's called Carnation Lily Rose, which is based on a popular children's rhyme by John Singer Sargent. Mm. He took a boating expedition 
on the Thames at Pingbourne and saw these Chinese lanterns hanging among the trees and lilies. And then he was really inspired. And so while he was staying at the home of his friend, painter F.D. Malay, he used their five-year-old daughter, Catherine, as a model. And then soon after replaced them with Polly and Dorothy or Dolly Barnard, who were the daughters of the illustrator Frederick Bernard, because they had the exact hair color that he was looking for. Ah, there we go. <laughs> yeah. So Dolly was 11. She's on the left. And Polly is seven. And she's on the right. And there was a lot involved in him doing this. He had the precise poses he required them to stand in. And he only painted at dusk. So they had, I think, just probably half an hour every single night where he would have them pose and then he would paint outside until the sunset and then he would pack up his stuff and then they would do it again the next mm -hmm. night I'm like that's one way to paint children i guess yeah true <laughs> make it short there we go so this last one is a little bit interesting just because so it's the painting of the ballerina's paintings by edgar degas so obviously like ballet has been the same as far as what the actual dance is but the popular imagery of it has been like, I don't know, basically like what the article talked about was the fact that there was a darker side to being a ballerina that he was touching on. This paragraph I thought was interesting is these relationships always involved an unbalanced power dynamic. Young female members of the Corps de Ballet entered into the academy as children. And many of these ballerinas and children that were called petite rats, basically little rats, came from working class or impoverished backgrounds, and they often joined the ballet to support their families working grueling six-day weeks. And so dancers' earnings and careers were beholden to just people that were prowling backstage. They were expected to submit to the affections of the men. They were frequently encouraged oh. by their own mothers to fan the flame of male desires because a lot of time these relationships yeah, would offer lifelines for these poor dancers. They wanted these aristocrats to basically give them patronage mm. and so i thought that was interesting that it's like in these pictures of ballet there's a lot of like sinister undertones and so the article just yeah. talked about the fact that that's what he was pulling from is the fact that like it's not like how we imagine ballet and ballerina mm -hmm. ballerinas now is like this glamorous super classical i mean granted we've talked about ballet a couple times and with the misty copeland episode and the dark side of professional dancing and ballet in particular and that was maybe even more heavy when this painting was done it was an interesting thing so the article really just talked on about like the reality of ballerinas in that time and again touches on why maybe some of his paintings of all these ballerinas have a dark vibe to them so that's crazy yeah. we talked a lot about Degas ballerinas we never once talked about that ah interesting what was the yeah. focus then when you guys talked about it just like how he was able to capture movement and I guess if you're focusing on art but yeah, I thought that was interesting to yeah. learn that it's, oh, the lives, you know, it wasn't like the glamorous life of a of an artist or a dancer. No, these are very romanticized paintings now. There's wall calendars of just all of his ballerina paintings because he did a ton. Yeah, there's so many. Um, yeah, but that is going to make me look at him a little differently. I have noticed sometimes there's male figures in certain positions in his paintings and now I get what he was doing. And then two, even yeah. just not, there's one in particular in this article where it's like the woman, there's a ballerina in the background with like her just like head like resting against the table, the wall. She looks like she's in distress. And so it's oh, no. just interesting. Gosh, that's really sad. Oh, this is an interesting thing. Okay, sorry. This is, so one of his most famous depictions of a dancer, I don't know why I didn't see this, comes not in the form of painting, but actually a wax sculpture mm -hmm. called like Little Dancer Age 14, which is a lifestyle statue of teenage petite rat that was only exhibited once in the artist's lifetime. And the great scandal is actually what caused him from ever exhibiting the sculpture again. The Little Dancer was originally presented differently from what she appears now because Degas dressed her up in a real tutu, bodice stockings, and a point shoes. She also had a pigtailed wig with a green bow and another ribbon tied around her neck. Some critics compared it to like Madame Tussaud's waxwork. One anonymous writer said, can art descend quicker? Art critic Paul Mance described the dancer as a flower of precocious depravity with face marked by the hateful promise of every vice. With bestial effantry, she makes her face forward or rather her little muzzle 
And this world is completely correct because the little girl is the beginning of a rat. And actually, it was Marie Van Gotham was the petite rat who posed for the sculpture. And she likely was also a part of this darker side of the ballet to survive. And she actually disappeared from the public eye shortly after the sculpture was completed. After being late to rehearsal, the Paris Opera actually just dismissed her. And it talks about how the teenager probably just returned home to follow in the footsteps of her mother, who was a laundress and most likely a sex worker. Just really interesting. So like that dark side of ballet in the sense that it was like a lot of poor women who had nowhere else to go like they were impoverished and so that was like what they did and so they were maybe getting exposed to a lot of abuse this quote also says to capture the physicality and discipline of the dancers Degas demanded his models pose for hours at a time and during excruciating discomfort as they held their contorted positions he wanted to capture his quote little monkey girls as he called them cracker their joints at the bar i have perhaps too often considered woman as an animal he once told the painter Pierre-Georges Genois in a moment of revealing honesty. So he was not a great person. And it's not like he was like showing the dark side of ballet, wanting to help these women. He was probably romanticizing it a lot and taking advantage of it as well. That's awful. This last one is going to be a preview for a future episode. I was going to dive more into it. And then I realized there's a whole topic here. Amazing. I love finding. (laughs) I found this beautiful article that popped up on my Google suggested which i love when it does Mm. that it was called the tragedy of art's greatest supermodel from bbc culture and i was like oh how fitting and she's actually the subject of a lot of paintings but probably the most famous one would be her posed as ophelia Mm -hmm. by john everett malaise where she's laying in the water with the flowers and her hair out behind her and the model of this portrait is actually elizabeth Siddell who was a member of what we now call the Pre-Raphaelite Sisters. You'll notice before we mentioned a few artists that are part of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. Mm-hmm. There actually was a novel published fairly recently, I think only a couple of years ago, called the Pre-Raphaelite Sisterhood, I think. And they actually they did an exhibition as well at a museum. And that's what this article came out about is talking about that. And she was one of the main members of that. So she was an artist herself, and she just has this tragic, really sad story about her relationship with Rossetti, who was one of the artists of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. But there's not a lot of details about this painting, actually. I'm not entirely sure. I've heard stories about that she almost died from it because she got so sick from laying in the water for so long. I couldn't find anything that, but I think we need to do a whole episode on the Pre-Raphaelite Sisters. Yeah, that sounds super So cool. we can definitely dive into that well as even more, but Elizabeth Siddell was a model and then she learned how to paint and she also wrote poetry and she was working in a milliner shop originally and then due to her delicate health and long hours and her family worrying about her in unpleasant conditions. Her mother permitted her to work as an artist model, which was something that was often synonymous with prostitution, which I thought was interesting with all of the people that we've covered. Maybe that's why some of them weren't named. Yeah. Or why it's harder to find their names. But they, like, talked over the finances, and then she was able to work part-time as a model until she was making enough money to be a full-on model as her main job. But she's been painted as Viola in Twelfth Night by Deverell. Holman Hunt painted her for a converted British family sheltering a Christian priest from the persecution of Druids in 1850. And she was also painted as Sylvia in Valentine Rescuing Sylvia from Proteus. And then modeled for Rossetti or her future husband in one of his lesser known paintings, Razo Vestida. And something that I also thought was really cool is that. Although today we would consider her extremely beautiful because she was like willowy and had beautiful, long, copper-colored hair. In the 1850s, being very thin was not considered sexually attractive and red hair was described as social suicide. (laughs) As if that's something that can be helped. (laughs) I know. So through her modeling work and the success of her paintings that she appeared in, she actually changed the public opinion of beauty wow but there will definitely be more on her as well as her fellow 
pre-Raphaelite sisters because her story was tragic, but really interesting. And they're part of this whole movement of the pre-Raphaelite movement that we'll definitely talk more about. I'm excited. Yes. Yeah. So it's a little preview Mm -hmm. into even more coming. Amazing. We obviously covered a lot of people today. We've covered 26 women in this episode, which is a lot. But I think if anything, it's just a good reminder that there are so many just like amazing works of art that are like without even knowing who they are, just like beautiful works of art that deserve to be celebrated, even if they were all done by men. It is still cool to realize that it's like most times it's not like these the women were just figments of their imagination. Like they were based off of models or people in their own lives who very much had real stories and rich histories of their own even if we don't really know who they are. And so I thought it was really cool to dig into the behind the scenes of all of these women and get to know their stories. And I think in a way it helps you understand more of the paintings, even with the ballerinas with Degas. Mm-hmm. It's like it adds a whole new context, I think. And, a, Definitely. and I think a better appreciation for the ballerinas in the art when it's like, oh, this is the circumstance that they were coming from. And it's just, it's cool. It was also really cool to see the influence that women had, even as the modeling role. The expressions that they had that are now famous with American Gothic or the Mona Lisa Mm. or like Whistler's mother. The fact that she was just able to sit in for a portrait because she was willing to help out and then it ends up being this famous famous painting. Mm -hmm. So it's just cool to see the influence that women were having on art all throughout history, even before they were allowed to have an even more prominent role Mm -hmm. as the artists themselves. So giving some of that power back to the muses, which we are all for. Absolutely. Like naming them, showing their role in the pieces that they were a part of, and allowing them to be celebrated just as these artworks are. Yeah, I fully agree. Thanks for joining us on this episode. Like I mentioned at the beginning, Every other week, we talk about a woman artist from history. Next week, I will be presenting on my found artist of the month. Join us next week for that. Hooray. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, are you a super fan of Taylor Swift, Jelly Roll, or Morgan Wallen? Are you that song nerd who likes to dive into every little lyric of every little song and figure out what everything means? Do you want to take that a bit further though? Because I have a podcast called Songwriter Soup, and it dives into the journey of a songwriter and how those people help craft the soundtrack of your life. I'm Laura Veltz, and I'm bringing all of my friends together to discuss our funny little job writing for all of your favorite artists. Listen to Songwriter Soup wherever you get your podcasts.